In one of my past lives, I used to travel, and I traveled a lot. It was rare that I would be gone for more than two or three nights at a time, but it did happen. I traveled some by car, but mostly by air. I remember the excitement when I first started traveling. The rental car place, dropping off my car, getting to the airport, waiting in lines, seeing all these people everywhere. But as time went on, I looked forward to traveling less and less. One of the things that I remember most about my travels was the excitement of family and friends meeting each other at the airport. Before 9-11, which is kind of hard to believe, we used to be able to go to the gates and meet people there. And the excitement of seeing everyone welcoming their loved ones. And then, after 9-11, we waited at the top of the escalators at Hartsfield. And you would stand there and you would wait for the person to come that you were waiting for. Sometimes I'd stand behind that line and wait at the escalators. And those waiting on them reacted with great joy. I don't know anything about those people. But what I did as I watched them was to see them stretch their necks and glimpse to see if they could find their loved one. I would hear them saying to each other, No, I don't see her. No, I don't see her. Then suddenly someone would exclaim, There he is! There she is! And if children were waiting, they would run to be the first to greet their grandpa or their mom or their dad. Soon the whole family is embracing and exchanging greetings. Often there are tears of joy as loved ones are reunited after a long separation. It's a joy to watch. It's the joy of relationships. It's not an exaggeration to say that relationships are the most essential things in our life because the two greatest commandments in the Bible have to do with right relationships. First, a right relationship with God, and then a right relationship with one another. Whenever you see broken relationships towards God, in the family, or in the church, we know it is not pleasing to God. God is in the business of reconciling broken relationships. Perhaps nothing is so moving as witnessing a fractured family being reconciled and, re and reunited. That's why Genesis 45 is such a moving chapter. We are allowed to look in on the reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers after 22 years of separation. Let's start our journey today by remembering what Diane shared last week and looking at other activities that have occurred. We saw in last week's reading in Genesis 37 presents no virtues for Joseph that would win our admiration or sympathy. He's a tattletale, he's a boaster, and he's inexplicitly receiving favoritism from his father, Jacob. He might not look like a bad guy, but he doesn't quite come across as a good guy either. 
And as we read more about Joseph's life, we find that his character is very complex. We discover that Joseph is handsome and successful, rising to the position of overseer of the fellow slaves. We hear Joseph's righteousness shine through his refusal to take advances to the wife that's interested in him. And subsequently, he's imprisoned for false charges. Commentator Cameron Howard tells us that in chapters 40 and 41, we learn that Joseph is skilled in dream interpretation. And upon interpreting Pharaoh's dream, he advises Pharaoh to store up 20% of the harvest in seven years of abundance to feed the land in seven years of famine. He becomes Pharaoh's second in command. Thus, Joseph gained authority over all the land of Egypt. In chapter 42, Joseph's family's life and his work life will collide. Facing starvation in Canaan, Jacob sends his sons to Egypt to buy some of the ground, the grain hoarded there. It should be no surprise, uh, it should be no surprise to us that Joseph can recognize his brothers even though they do not recognize him. His ability to interpret dreams has already demonstrated his perceptiveness. The insight combined with his control over the most significant known food supply during this time of famine gives Joseph the power in this situation. If Joseph is such a stand-up guy, a hero with forgiveness in his heart, Surely this is the point in the story where he meets his brothers for the first time that he wants reconciliation. But rather than reconciliation, Joseph meets his brothers with manipulation. He pretends not to know them, accusing them of spying, throws them all in jail for three days, and demands, demands that after they take the grain back, that they bring the other brother, Benjamin. He sneaks the money that they paid for the grain back in their bag in hopes that they will be accused of stealing. You see, he's the governor, and he is very powerful. Citing the loss of Joseph and Simon, Jacob refuses to allow Benjamin to return to Egypt until the family is out of food again and is left for no other choice when they, he is left with no other choice. The emotional roller coaster continues for the brothers in chapters 43 and 44 when Joseph feasts with his family, including the newly favorite son, Benjamin. Rather than reveal his identity again, Joseph has his own silver cup slipped into Benjamin's sack, setting him up for charges of stealing. Judah, who earlier lobbied for selling Joseph rather than killing him, steps in to plead for Benjamin's release for the sake of their father, whose life is bound up in Benjamin's life. With Jacob's life on the line, Joseph finally makes himself known to his brothers. The power to forgive must always be in the hands of the one who has been wronged. 
It is suitable for Joseph to be empowered to forgive the wrongs done to him by his brothers. But before Joseph weeps on their necks, he plays on their fears and exploits his imperial power over them. His action may not constitute intentional revenge, but they certainly are not worthy of a Hallmark card. We aren't exactly sure what changes Joseph's heart. He is reassured that he has reassured his brothers. He urges them to fetch Jacob and come to live in Egypt where he will care for them. The scene is one of reconciliation, forgiveness, and of grace. The Joseph story provides an explanation for how the Israelites ended up in Egypt. And it sets the stage for God's deliverance for the people under Moses' leadership in the next book, Exodus. Joseph is not condoning his brother's wrongdoings. They are guilty for how they treated Joseph and the suffering that they caused. But Joseph was willing to forgive them and show them mercy in a view of how God had turned their wrongdoings into good. Joseph fully understood God's sovereignty and the truth that Paul expresses in Romans 8. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Five times in verses 5 through 9, Joseph gives credit to God for bringing him to Egypt. Now, does that mean God caused the evil to happen to Joseph? No, evil can still exist. We have free will. Bringing him to Egypt would make things right. Bringing the family to Egypt would give them a chance to survive. Joseph understood the covenant promise that God had given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knew that God was going to make his father's family into a great nation. Joseph told his brothers that it was not them who sent him to Egypt, but God, so that they might be saved by a greater deliverance. Joseph exclaims and explains that the famine which has been in the land for two years will continue for five more years. Joseph promises to settle Jacob's family in the land of Goshen, which is in the delta of the Nile and a very good area for grazing their flocks. He tells them to bring everyone to Jake, in Jacob's family, and he will provide for them. Up until this chapter, Joseph has used an interpreter to speak to his brothers. But now he says that he see, and Benjamin sees that it is Joseph when he talks in their language. They must tell their father of all of Joseph's splendor in Egypt and all that they have seen. Then hurry and bring their father down. Joseph then embraces his brother Benjamin. He weeps on his neck, and Benjamin weeps. And then he goes and he kisses each of his brothers. Because the hidden sin was finally exposed and dealt with, forgiveness had been granted and joy and peace return to the family. But this time, it was true peace and true joy founded on the truth and grounded in the forgiveness of reconciliation. 
Keep in mind that this reconciliation was only possible because Joseph had suffered and triumphed. We read that after the forgiveness and reconciliation, the brothers talked with Joseph. I wonder what they talked about. This little sentence speaks volumes in what it doesn't report. Remember that when Joseph was home before being sold, his brothers hated him? They couldn't stand him. They didn't even greet him, let alone talk to him. But now that they have been reconciled and forgiven, communication was restored. No doubt that they apologized for how they had treated him. They certainly updated him on the family news, especially news about their father. Joseph freely forgave them and welcomed them into his heart and his home. Joseph chose before God to forgive his brothers, trust God to deal with them and the wrongs that they had done. To forgive means that you decide to absorb the pain and loss caused by the other person and to go free even when they don't deserve it. Forgiveness is costly for the one doing the forgiving. When God forgives our sins in Christ, it doesn't mean that God brushes them aside. It means that Jesus Christ paid the penalty so that we could live free. Just like Jesus said in Matthew 8, just as God has forgiven us, so we must forgive others from our hearts. So the key of reconciliation is our attitude. Ask God to forgive you God's love and forgiveness towards the one who has wronged you. It would be best to focus on our attitude, not on the other person's behavior or attitude. If we look back at Joseph during his 22 years away from his family, we would see that he kept God central in his life. This is such an important concept, if only we could grasp it ourselves in our daily lives. So now the question stands, is this sermon about forgiveness? Is it about keeping God at the central focus of our lives? I would tell you yes. The answer is that truly being able to forgive requires knowing God as the focal point of our lives. If God is the focal point of our lives, we have what it takes to forgive. This focus allows us to be the person that God intended us to be. Amen.